Let's bow our heads and let's have a, a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the, the opportunity that we have to come together here this morning and, and study out of your Holy Word. Father, we praise you for our Lord and Savior Jesus, who gave up everything in heaven, all heaven, uh, to come here uh, to this uh, dark place to be treated as an enemy and uh, yet to show compassion and love towards humanity and how to live a righteous life and uh, then taking our sins upon himself and dying for us. Uh, Lord, we give you our hearts and minds now and accept that most precious gift. All heaven was given in Jesus and it's just amazing, uh, an amazing thing for us to wonder at. Father, we lift up those who couldn't be with us here this morning. Uh, we think of those within the congregation who are dealing with issues. Jerry's having an issue with her car. Uh, she had an accident, Father, and uh, uh, the tow company uh, took it away and, and sold it to be hawked off. And she's, she's now without transportation and trying to find out what exactly happened. And so we pray that you'll be very near to her in that situation and, and bless her. She needs transportation. Uh, my friend Dave, who's probably is about as low as one can get in this world, just about, I pray that you'd be very near to him as we tried to aid him and be with uh, those who have been dealing with health issues that are ill and especially be with our children and our families, Lord. Time's running out and uh, we want to, want a hedge built around them. We want to be able to Share the truth with those around us and be with those Bible students that are meeting with us in Attica as well. Uh, Father, we thank you so much again for your most wonderful gifts that you give to us every day. I pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. Give me the words to speak this morning and may the the hearts uh, be willing to hear what we find from your word. Thank you for hearing this prayer. I've asked it in the name of Jesus who is worthy. Amen. I'm going to be talking about, well, the title of my message is The the 1260 Mystery. You know, the highest form of taking an oath or a judicial swearing in is when a man swears by God. Uh, He swears that God is his witness and that, that what he is saying is the truth. And, uh, you know, we see that in court cases, you know. And it makes you wonder today if the person actually really means it. But, you know, you come into court to testify as a witness, you put your hand on the Bible, and you swear by God that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? And like I said, it's probably the the highest form of taking an oath. Um, There are many instances, actually, in the Scriptures... Uh, where men swore by God concerning an important issue. I want to look at a few of them with you as we get started this morning. Uh, In Genesis 24, in the first three verses here, Genesis 24 says, And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house, that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord. Isn't it interesting? Today, you put the hand on the Bible. At that time, you put your hand under their thigh. And I'll get to that in a minute. 
And it says, and he says, and I'll make thee swear by the Lord, this is verse 3, and the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. The most trusted servant of Abraham's house, his name was Eliezer. And in fact, it's rather interesting. If you go to chapter 15, verse 2, you'll see that, that uh, uh, he had tentatively been selected by Abraham as his prospective heir. And, and so, but he was summoned by Abraham uh, for a most important mission, and that was to find a wife for who? For Abraham's daughter? No, find a wife for his son. Right? <laughs> That's what you meant. I know what you meant. And, and, and so, um, he, he didn't want him to marry one of the daughters of the Canaanites. Remember, that's where Abraham was dwelling. Now, Isaac, Isaac was about 40 years old, and you sit here and you think, wow, that's pretty aged not to have been married. And I think the reason it took that long is because Abraham did not want him to marry one of the the you know the girls from from that area. He wanted someone back from where his family was, and so um, he made his servant swear. Now, some interpreters have considered the thigh as symbolic of lordship or authority, and the placing of the hand beneath it an oath of allegiance to that person as their superior. And so that's why you know sometimes you'll read that. In, really in the Old Testament, several times, you'll put your hand under my thigh, and I'm going to... It's like us putting our hand on the Bible. That's what you can liken it to. Um, this ancient ceremony accompanying as a solemn oath is mentioned again only one time, really, that I can recall in the same book. You go to chapter 47, you can read it again. But in both instances, the circumstances suggest a promise to deal faithfully with his posterity after he was to die. Um, and so the death of the one wouldn't release that person from their oath, you see. He was bound by that oath no matter. And so there was one instance. Let's look at uh, another instance. Second Chronicles 36 And verse 11, Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign, and reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God, so, so we see it again, swear by God, but he, he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart, from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. Of course, Zedekiah is the one who summoned Jeremiah and he wanted him to ask God to bless them as uh, in their fight against Nebuchadnezzar. He was uh, uh, getting a confederacy together to fight against Babylon, see? And he wanted the prophet to come in and talk to God and have God bless him. But due to his rebellion... That's Zedekiah's rebellion against the covenant he made with the Lord. Jeremiah was given the message to tell Zedekiah that the Lord would fight against Zedekiah because of his unfaithfulness to his promise. And uh, I could go on and on there. There are a lot of lessons in that story. Um, 
But we're looking at where Nebuchadnezzar even had him swear before God. Um, Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, Nehemiah, of course, rebuilding Jerusalem. This this the story about all that. And in chapter 13, verse 23 says, In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. Basically, a lot of these were Philistines. Um, Verse 24, And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair. This is rather interesting, isn't it? Plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. So he's given them a, a lesson here. It's very interesting when he, he talks there about um, plucking off their hair. He took these men and shaved their faces. They had the beards, and it was a, an act of shame for them that they had shamed God. And so he made them swear by God that they would stop marrying the women, uh, the Moabites, uh, the Moabites, the Philistines, these you know pagan uh, people. Um, essentially mixed marriages is what he's talking about. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting, as long as Nehemiah had remained in there in Judea, there was probably no serious violation of the covenant. You know, it's kind of like the old saying, uh, though, when the cat's away, the mice will play. That's kind of what was happening there. You know, um, as soon as he left Judea, they started bringing in and marrying foreign wives of the Philistines. And, and uh, you know, but we see that Nehemiah had made them swear an oath to God, and to break such an oath was very serious. It had very serious consequences. Again, another lesson for us. If we swear by God, that's a very serious thing, isn't it? Here's, here's one more, Psalms 15. And now the Bible's got several examples. I'm just sharing a few with you. Uh, Psalms 15, uh, verse 1. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned. Now, that word means despised. Don't get confused with with the word condemned, which means convicted of guilt. Some people I've heard say condemned there, but it's contemned, which means despised. So he says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. So when he's made a promise or he's, he's entered into a contract that may turn out to his own hurt, he still remains true to his word, see, because he, he made a pledge. His word is as good as his bond. Have you heard that before? 
So we can see the seriousness here in these examples I've given you of, of taking an oath with God. And, and although it, it is awesome when a human being takes an oath with, with God as his witness, it is, in my opinion, it's much more awesome when the creator of the heavens and the earth decides to say something under oath. And God has. God has sworn. Did you know that? In fact, it's rather amazing that God decides to swear that He will do a certain thing. When God swears, though, He swears by Himself. I'll give you two examples to begin with. Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 5. He says, But if ye will not hear these words... I swear by myself, saith the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. That's God taking an oath, swearing upon Himself of what's going to happen. Here's another one, Exodus 32, verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidst unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Now the reason, of course, why God swears is because, and swears on Himself is because there is no one greater than Him. <laughs> well, that's, you know, the Godhead. Yeah. So, you can be sure uh, that any time God swears that something exceedingly important is being communicated. And especially important uh, when it is recorded that God swore, not to a human being, but to another member of the Godhead. Which is very interesting in and of itself. If you really, I mean, contemplate that. That one member of the Godhead takes an oath with another member of the Godhead. And I'm going to give you an example of that. And so, uh, I mean, I believe that any time you find in the Scriptures that one member of the Godhead swore to another member of the Godhead, something exceedingly important is being communicated that's far beyond, really, uh, the human mind to comprehend. But I want to comprehend it as much as possible. What about you? I mean, it was included in God's Word for a reason. And I think that reason is for us to, under, to have some understanding here. One of these times is recorded in Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and we'll get back to this in another reference here in a few minutes. But it says, He shall build the temple of the Lord, and He shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon His throne, and He shall be a priest upon His throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, of course, this is referring to the Messiah, isn't it? The branch. But Pastor Joel, I didn't read here in Zechariah where God swore unto Himself about the branch. My friends, this is, this is where the spirit of prophecy is such a blessing. 
Because speaking about these two verses, I want you to notice this. This is from the book, The Desire of Ages, page 834. This is what's, what's being spoken of here. Notice this. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Father and the Son had united in a covenant to redeem man if he should be overcome by Satan. They had clasped their hands in a solemn pledge that Christ should become the surety for the human race. Isn't that interesting? In the same way that you go to a court and you swear that that something is exactly the way you describe it, God the Father and God the Son made an official agreement with each other concerning the salvation of the human race, concerning our salvation. They made a covenant together. And as she says, they clasped hands on it. Used to, when I was a little kid, used to be this way, it's not so much anymore, um, you know, you've heard the expression, your word is your bond. I said it just a few moments ago. Your word is your bond. I was raised with that. You didn't have to sign contracts within, well, I mean, relatively speaking, if you were purchasing land and you had to have titles and stuff, of course. But if, if I remember going out with Dad, Dad would get hired for jobs. Uh, he had a second job. Uh, he worked at Purdue University, but he did jobs on the side, and he plastered houses. And he'd go out on a job, and the guy would, he would talk with the guy, and when they made an agreement for Dad to do the work, they shook hands on it. And that was all that was needed. And Dad would do the work, and the guy was satisfied, Dad would get paid for it. Your word was your bond. And that's the way I was raised. And I think we have a generation of people who were raised that way. Maybe more than one generation. But it's not so much today, is it? Another signs of the times. But God here, the Father and God the Son, made an official agreement and they clasped hands on it. They shook hands on it. Now would you say that God's word is His bond? Absolutely. Now I'd like to look more closely at another time that God swore from the latter part of the book of the book of Daniel. We've been studying for the last several weeks prophecies, the prophecies in Daniel. We'll begin into Revelation here pretty soon. But I want to look at uh, I want to look at Daniel 10. And this time God the Son swore something in the name of his Father. And I want you to notice, if you go to Daniel 10, we see Daniel having a vision. And I want you to notice what he says in verses 5 and 6. He says, Then I lifted up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of euphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. The voice of a multitude. That would be kind of loud, wouldn't it? The voice of a multitude. Who is this man that Daniel sees? Do you recognize this description? Is it, does it sound familiar to you? You know, there, it sounds like the same kind of description that you find in the book of Revelation when speaking about Jesus. 
Now, I'll share this with you. It's from the book, The Sanctified Life, page 49. After quoting Daniel 2 through 6, notice this. It says, This description is similar to that given by John when Christ was revealed to him upon the Isle of Patmos. No less a personage than the Son of God appeared to Daniel. Our Lord comes with another heavenly messenger to teach Daniel what would take place in the latter days. I would say that this is something that is extremely important. If Jesus Himself comes to you with a message, I would say that that's probably one of the most important messages that you will ever receive, wouldn't you? And so Daniel received this great vision which describes and, and, and it predicts what would happen from the time in which he received the vision up until the time of the end and even beyond, right? And we read in Daniel 11, if you go to Daniel 11, you read oh, verses 30 to 34, a description of the, the great papal persecution, okay? But notice what he then says in verse 35. Daniel 11, verse 35 He says, and some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end because it is yet for a time appointed. Yet for a time appointed. That's pretty interesting there. Um, This papal persecution was to go on until the time of the end. A time appointed. Who appointed the time? That's interesting, isn't it? This is not the end of time that's being spoken of, but the time of the end. There's a difference. The time of the end is the last, you could say, uh, epical period in earth's history, which I believe we're living in right now. And then, you know, you go into Daniel 12. Daniel's told there in verse 4, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. So there was a time that was appointed that would be starting out the time of the end. See? In the time of the end, the book of Daniel, the prophecies in particular, are going to be unsealed. But until the time of the end, these prophecies, they're not going to be comprehended. Especially the prophecy in regard to time. And when you look back in history, you study these prophecies, you find out that was the case. There was no understanding about it until the time of the end, just as God had said. Now let's look at this vision a little more deeply, starting with Daniel 12 and verse 5. It says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, the one on this side of the bank of the river and the other on that side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen which was upon the waters of the river. Now this is, he's speaking about Jesus Christ. We saw this earlier. This is the man in linen. He says, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? Now let's stop here for a moment and let's think about this. What wonders is he talking about? Well, this is Daniel 12. Daniel has seen a lot in vision, hasn't he? He's talking about all that has been described to him in this vision that started clear back in chapter 10. 
And it goes all the way through chapter 11, and now we're in chapter 12. He wants to know how long it's going to be until the time of the end. That's what he wants. Now, if you were Daniel, wouldn't you have wanted to know when the time of the end was going to start? I would, myself. I think yes, of course. And so it's an appropriate question. How long? When is this going to start, Lord? And, and in fact, this is an important enough question that the Son of God answered it by taking an oath. And he answered it this way in verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river. Who's that again? That's Jesus Christ. When he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. Now, notice what Daniel says in verses 8 and 9. He says, And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Now, Daniel, he understood chapters 10 and 11. He understood that. But he didn't understand about the three and a half times or the three and a half years. But this period of time was important enough in the plan of salvation and in working out the mystery of God that the Lord Jesus, He swore in the name of His Father in heaven. He took an oath. And it's so important that Jesus takes an oath upon the Father. If that's important, so important that he does that, we need to understand this time period. The 1260-day prophecy. We need to understand it, wouldn't you say? In the Jewish biblical calendar, a month had 30 days. And a year had 12 months. So a year was 360 days. And figuring that up, then three and a half years would be 1260 days. And this 1260-day period of time is so important that it's mentioned over and over again in the books of Daniel and Revelation. Have you seen that? Why is it repeated so many times? Because it is extremely important. It's even referred to by Jesus Christ Himself in Matthew 24, uh, Mark 13. You can find it. Um, And without this time period... Let me tell you something. If you didn't have this time period, many of the prophecies in Daniel and Revelation would be impossible to comprehend or interpret. You couldn't do it. There's no way. That's why it's so important. It's like one of the master keys to unlocking the mysteries of the prophecies in Daniel and Revelation. So wouldn't you say this 1260-day prophetic period is extremely important to study Bible prophecy uh, we have to understand something about this period of time you just have to and so we're going to go over a number of facts concerning this 1260 day prophecy first of all this prophecy is in prophetic time 
because it was to extend until the time of the end, right? It couldn't possibly be literal days. There are some interpreters who try to tell you it's literal days, but that's impossible. In fact, something else we notice about this 1260-day prophecy, this period of time, it's an anchor point. If you study everything in Bible prophecy about this period of time, then you, you won't be led astray by people who say that this happened a long time ago or that it's going to happen way in the future. This period of time anchors the events in Bible prophecy. It forces, in fact, it only forces one type of interpretation of Bible prophecy, and that's the historical interpretation. If you understand the 1260, friends, you cannot be led astray by futurism, preterism, or by any other interpretations of Bible prophecy. Now we're going, we're going to look at a number of prophecies in which this time period of 1260 years appears. The first is in Daniel 7 and verse 25. In Daniel 7, Daniel has been uh, enumerating and explaining the the characteristics of the little horn power which makes war against the people of God. Let's, let's read it. Notice what he says. Daniel 7 verse 25. And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until what? Time, until a time, and times, and the dividing of time. Well, the Aramaic word, Idan, that's what's being used here. It's translated time. And it means a year. That's what the word means. The word translated time is also from the same Aramaic word, Idan, but it's pointed in the language as dual in this text. So it means two times or two years. Okay? And the word translated dividing is Aramaic palag. It's translated as half. So the more acceptable translation, you look at the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, they actually got it uh, accurate. It says a time, two times, and a half a time. That's correct. So this little horn power is going to have the power to persecute for three and a half times, or actually in the language it says years, so it would be three and a half prophetical years. So we have three and a half prophetical years that are being spoken of here in Daniel 7.25. And that's equal to 1260 prophetical days. Isn't that remarkable? Because 360 days times three and a half years equals 1260. So this is then the 1260 literal years using the day for your principle. For that period of time, for over 1200 years, what we're being told is, the little horn power is going to have the power to persecute the saints of God. And I've said this before, if you study any history at all, you can, if you're honest at heart, you can only conclude there has been one power and one power only that has persecuted God's people for that long of time in earth's history. And that is the papacy. 
the Roman Catholic Church. There's no other power. None that have ruled that has done it for 1260 years. You can't mistake it. <laughs> now, another characteristic of the little horn power can be seen in the prophecy of Daniel 7. Daniel has been describing the 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 four world empires in the beginning of the prophecy, you know, Babylon was represented by what? A lion, right? Medo-Persia by a bear, Greece by a leopard, and then you had the pagan Roman Empire by a great and terrible beast. These are the four great empires of the world, and the Bible teaches all the way through the book of Daniel that there is not going to be another world empire after that. It teaches that the the fourth kingdom would be divided or broken up. And this is exactly what it teaches in Daniel 7, where this dreadful beast has ten horns. Notice what it says in verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Let me ask you a question. What does a horn represent in prophecy? Do you know? If you looked in the same chapter and you looked at verses 17 and you looked at verse 24, it says, it will tell you that a horn represents a king or a kingdom. Okay? It, it represents great power or a king or a kingdom. So the Western Roman Empire was to be divided up into ten kingdoms. And this actually happened. This happened between 351 A.D. and 476 A.D. The Bible also predicted that a little horn was to arise that would uproot three of these horns, which means three of these kingdoms would disappear, would be defeated by this little horn. Now, what you can understand from this is that this little horn power could not arise until the ten kingdoms were in place. Because the, Daniel says he, come up, he came up from among them. See? So, he's not going to arise until the ten kingdoms were in place, which was not until 476 A.D. in history. That's, that's what, what you come to. And it's interesting to note that the little horn power could not possibly be, this is just a side note, uh, some people say that he's, uh, some teachers teach that he was, Antiochus Epiphanes was the little horn. Well, he didn't even exist. I mean, he existed 600 years before then. He wasn't alive at that time. He's already dead. <laughs> because the little horn has to come up after the ten have already been established. Well, somebody says, how then do you, know, do you understand this power applying to the papacy? Because the papacy existed long before the 6th century or long before 476 A.D. Well, that's a legitimate question, don't you think? But that's not hard to explain. What is a horn? Again? A horn is a king. Someone that has civil governmental authority. The papacy existed before these ten horns existed, but it didn't exist as a horn. It didn't have a civil government. In the days of the Apostle Paul, 
the bishop of Rome didn't have a kingdom. Did he? Who was the king when Paul was alive? Caesar. Caesar was the king. It wasn't the pope. It was Caesar, right? And anyone else who claimed to be king would be crucified. You see, they tried to get Jesus on that, didn't they? He said he claims to be king, king of the Jews. Well, if you claim to be king, any king, you were, you know, going against Caesar. And you'd be put to death. You'd be crucified. You see, the Apostle Paul talks about this very thing in, in 2 Thessalonians where he talks about the papal power, that man of sin. Notice what he says, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 6. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Now, you know, what I love about the Bible, Jesus spoke in parables, didn't he? And he still speaks in ways through his prophets to where only his people, those who have spiritual eyesight, will understand. I've talked to people about Second Thessalonians and they're just so confused they don't understand what, what Paul's talking about. But if you understand prophecy, you can understand what exactly what Paul's talking about here. What does he mean by what withholdeth? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. The pagan Roman Empire was in power. The papacy wasn't in power, right? In the time of Paul. Pagan Rome was in power. The papacy could not develop its real power until the Caesars were taken out of the way. Right? Until pagan Rome falls. And this is exactly what happened in history. You see, 2 Thessalonians 2 agrees perfectly with Daniel 7. The mystery of lawlessness already existed in Paul's time. The Antichrist power was already there. But Paul says he couldn't really be revealed yet. Because pagan Rome was in power. The Caesars were in power. Even when the the Roman Empire was divided up and there were no more Caesars. There was still someone who had civil authority in Rome. You know what his name was? His name was Odiacer. And he ruled the kingdom of the Heruli. And the Heruli were Arians. They controlled the whole country of Italy. No one could even be chosen as a pope without his permission, Odiacer's permission. And this power kept the papacy in check. See? The papacy had no civil authority yet, although they existed. The papacy wasn't the little horn power as long as Odiacer was in control. So, something had to be done to get Odiacer out of the way. It's almost like the mafia, you know? We've got to get this boss out of the way, and then I'm going to take over, Right? So, an alliance was made. And Theodoric, he was the king of the Ostrogoths. He came down with his army and he defeated Odiacer. And he did that in 493 AD. Actually, though, that didn't help very much, did it? Because Theodoric and the Ostrogoths, they were Arians too. 
And the Arians didn't believe in having a pope. See? That was one of their beliefs. So, that kind of helped, but it didn't really help, sort of, you know? <clears throat> the pope still couldn't have his way because he was still under the control of the Ostrogoths of power right there in Rome. But one of the three were down. Remember there was going to be three that had to be plucked out? Three kingdoms? One of them was down and there were just two to go for the little horn then to be able to exert his power. Now the Ostrogoths were in control, but they had enemies in northern Africa. And you know who their enemies were? They were called the Vandals. These people built great ships. And every year they'd go to one of the court cities in the Roman Empire and they would go through and they'd loot the city and they'd take all the wealth of the city. One year they looted Rome. In fact, they looted the city of Rome for 14 days and they took all the wealth that they could find and all kinds of prisoners. And of course, understandably, this made the people in Rome very unhappy. <laughs> so we see that the papacy could never exert its power as long as the Vandals and the Ostrogoths were in control of Italy. So something had to be done, right? We've got prophecy here that says the three are going to be plucked out, so what? something's got to be done. So you know what they did, the papacy? They contacted Justinian. Have you ever heard of him? Justinian. He was the head of the Eastern Roman Empire there in Constantinople. So they got a hold of him and said, hey, we got an issue here. We need some help. And you know what? He gave them help. Justinian sent the armies of the Eastern Roman Empire in and the Vandals were destroyed around 534 A.D. And there's still one kingdom left though and that was the Ostrogoths. And they were driven from the city of Rome in 538 A.D. And that was the earliest time in history, friends, that the papacy could actually exert civil power and authority and be called a little horn power. 538 A.D. Incidentally, driving the Ostrogoths out, that wasn't permanent because they actually did come back. They were not driven out permanently until... I think it was about 10 years later. Um, but they were driven out for the first time in 538 A.D., and so that's the first time the papacy can be called the Little Horn because they actually had civil authority then. It now had become the Little Horn that would persecute the saints for 1260 years. From 538 A.D., if you extend the 1260-year period, you come to the year 1798 A.D. Now, many people around this time, 1798 A.D., around that time, they began to realize that something important was about to happen. Something was going on. There were scenes in nature that were just out of this world, never happened before. There were some other things. There was a religious movement. There were things that were going on. There were wars. They knew something important was about to happen. One of those persons was John Wesley. Have you ever heard of John Wesley? You've heard of John Wesley, haven't you? A few decades before that, John Wesley was preaching the gospel in America. He was preaching in England. He realized that something important was about to happen, and he wrote about it, and he taught that the time of papal persecution was about to end. 
that's what he wrote. And of course, if you know, I can get more and more into prophecy. We know that Napoleon, in the year 1798, he sent his general Berthier into Rome, and they took the Pope captive and led him out. Took away their property, their land, their civil authority. Exactly as prophecy had predicted. 1260 years. Now, I think we've learned quite a bit from about the 1260 year period from Daniel 7.25, don't you? <laughs> we learned from Daniel 12.6 and 7 that during this period of time, the power of the holy people would be broken or graphically, if I was to graphically translate it, shattered and destroyed in essence is what Daniel said and friends this this is really a mystery that I cannot explain um, I don't completely understand it why would God allow his people to be persecuted and broken I know certain principles involved why God allows certain things and I don't think we really will fully understand it until we get to heaven. But uh, we have been given a few hints in the spirit of prophecy as to why and how God allowed this to happen. In Desire of Ages, in the chapter It Is Finished, uh, she says that Satan was not then, and this was at the cross, she says that Satan was not then totally destroyed. She said that both for the sake of angels and for men, the devil must be allowed to live more, to more fully develop his principles so that both angels and men can understand what his character was like. And I think that's an incredible statement. The devil must be allowed to develop the true principles of his government, of his character. The 1260-year period of persecution was a period, I believe, when that happened. The Bible says in Nahum, Nahum chapter 1, verse 9, he says, What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. Why will affliction not rise up a second time? Because all humanity, friends, will have seen the consequences of sin and it will be abhorrent to them. They will not want to sin ever again. You know, and I also, I, I can't explain why it took so long. You know, Daniel couldn't understand it. Uh, neither could Adam and Eve. You know, they thought that the Messiah would come quickly. <laughs> they didn't realize it was going to take thousands of years. You know, um, God knew that the uh, <clears throat> the people of past ages couldn't bear to comprehend all this, so He said, "You know, the words are going to be sealed until the time of the end." That's what He told Daniel. Now there is a, an amazing prophecy, which some people think still in the future, which I'd like to share with you here um, as I begin to close up. It's in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Now notice right in the middle of the prophecy, 
we are given some specifications. Revelation 11, beginning with verse 1. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. What is the temple of God? Well, Paul says over and over and over, you read Paul, he says it's the church. The temple of God is the church. You can see that clearly if you study uh, Ephesians 1, 2, and 4, 1 Corinthians 3, even 1 Corinthians 6. You'll see it real clearly. But he says, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. What altar is this that he's talking about? Well, if you remember, Paul said in Hebrews 13, we have an altar, and that's he's talking about the, the earthly sanctuary. He says, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. So this is the altar of the new covenant. Alright? So he says, and let's go to verse 2, he says, but the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. When you're thinking of the new covenant, I'm not talking about the old sanctuary services, okay? When you relay those symbols into the actual ministry of Christ, where is the court? Well, the court is this world in the new covenant. It's this world. The altar was where the sacrifice was slain, right? Where was the sacrifice slain in the new covenant? In this world, okay? And then after you come to the altar, before you come into the sanctuary, you come to the laver. And the laver is where people are washed and where people are purified. But get this point. If you're going to be purified at all, you must be purified in this world. Because that's where the labor is. There are people who say, you know, God's not going to change your character and none of that purification is going to happen until Jesus comes. They don't understand the Bible. They don't understand these symbols. The labor was in the world. It's in the courtyard, which is in the world. You have to be purified here. That's what Jesus promises to do for us. You're not going to be taken up to heaven and be purified there like some people think. If you're going to be purified, you're going to be purified right here. The laver is in the court. Don't ever forget that. Only the pure will see God. Remember that what Jesus said in Matthew 5? Only the sanctified, only the holy will dwell in His presence. Hebrews 12. I could go on and on and on about that. You must be washed. You must be purified. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. 1 John 3, 3. So friends, don't let anyone talk you out of your birthright. Jesus died on the cross so that you could have eternal life, but he cannot give it to you unless you're purified, and he works with you to purify you. He forgives you, and then he works on purifying you. Back to verse 2. But the court which is without... The temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Well, in the old sanctuary services, you knew who the Gentiles were. They were all everybody who wasn't a Jew, right? But this isn't talking about the Jews and Gentiles by blood. 
It's talking about spiritual Israel versus those who are not a part of spiritual Israel. That's what is meant by Gentiles. So who are these Gentiles? They're professed Christians. They are professed Jews. Remember, a curse is pronounced twice in Revelation against those who say that they are Jews, but they really aren't Jews. You remember that? That's in Revelation 2, 9, Revelation 3, 9. Very easy to remember. Revelation 2, 9, 3, 9. Well, that's who the Gentiles are that are spoken of here. So he says, But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it's given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Hey, there's that time thing again. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, our scripture reading for today. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore, that's sixty, clothed in sackcloth. So here you have the 1260 day period again. They will tread the holy city for 42 months. What's the holy city? Well, in the Old Testament, but what's being spoken of now is the church. Okay? The holy city is the church. The holy city is a representation of the church. They'll tread it down, persecute it for 42 months, months which is the same as 1260 days, prophetical days, which is a literal 1260 years. As I said already, this is a mystery. I can't tell you why God determined that it was going to take this period of time in order you know, for the whole universe to see the full development of the character of Satan. I know that God is not arbitrary. And my educated guess is that it took that long for the true character of sin to be revealed. But it's a mystery. When I say God's not arbitrary, God didn't say, okay... I'm giving you 1260 years to persecute my people. He didn't, God doesn't do that. That's the way things work out. Remember, prophecy is history in advance, right? So this is, you know, this is uh, uh, the period of time also when the woman would have to flee into the wilderness for 1260 days. You remember that? Revelation 12. Now, I can't explain the mystery of the 1260. It's one of the great mysteries of Bible prophecy, I think. But I trust the Lord, and I know that there was a just reason uh, for this amount of time. Yeah, that's, you know, I, I think when we get to heaven, that's something that can be answered. But I do know that it was so important that the Lord swore an oath to himself about it. Now, Daniel was told something about this mystery in Daniel 12, verses 9 and 10. And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. None of the wicked shall understand these things that we're studying right now. And I, I can tell you that's a fact. I run into it very often. Every time I teach about prophecy, and I'm talking to somebody about prophecy who, you know, that isn't a Christian, 
Or they may be a professed Christian. They just don't know their Bible. They don't understand. They don't understand it. But there will also be many people who, despite the persecution and the tribulation and and the trading down of the city, they'll understand. And they will be purified and they'll be made white and tried. You see, many people have washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb. It's a number that is so great that the Bible says it'll be a number like the sands of the sea. (laughs) You know, like the stars of heaven. That's a lot. That number is not yet completely made up. You believe that? God wants to use people of the present generation to help make up this number that will be as the sand of the sea and, and as the stars of heaven. God wants to use you, friends, and He wants to use me. Do you want to be a part of that group that will be purified, made white, and tried? Do you want to receive an eternal inheritance, a a birthright where you won't be in in any more tribulation or in any more pain? Do you want to be a part of that? I do. You know, in, in the grand scheme of things... This is just a whisper of a life here, isn't it? You know, when I'm tested, I I think to myself, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is doing this, this, or keeping that, or whatever, is that worth forfeiting eternity? Is that worth pounding nails through the hands of Jesus for? It really isn't, is it? In the grand scope of things. And Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think we can kind of understand why. I sold all that for this bowl of porridge. Let's not do that, friends. Right? If you're willing to be among that number that will be standing when Jesus comes. If you're willing to do that, and you want to be there, pray with me now that we'll be among that number. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we do again thank you so very, very much for Jesus. We thank you that that you made a covenant bond with Him, that you swore an oath together, that if man were to fall, that Jesus would come and save mankind. Father, it's an awesome an awesome thought that you love us so much that you give up your son. And Father, we come before you now, we pray that as we claim that blood of Christ that you forgive us. We accept that most precious gift. We pray that you send the spirit to be with us. And we may be made up of those people that number the, the number of the sand of the sea and the stars of heaven when Jesus returns. Help us be a witness to those around us and encourage them that they too can stand and make up that number when Jesus returns. Please continue to bless us. Not because you know, we're worthy, but Jesus is worthy. And we ask this in His name.